You're listening to the first Do No Harm podcast, episode 21. We are so excited to share with you part one of our chat with Warwick Schiller, where we dig into the experiences he's had over the last couple of years that has led to a shift in how he works with his horses. So stay tuned. Welcome to Equestrian Movement's first Do No Harm podcast. I'm your host, Katie Boniface, co-founder of Equestrian Movement with Sarah Gallagher. We work with horse riders who want to build a stronger bond and a deeper connection with their horses. In our first Do No Harm podcast, we discuss with other industry professionals how to work with horses to firstly do no harm and secondly support their mental, emotional and physical well-being throughout the training process so that we have horses that enjoy learning and ask to be ridden. Each episode, we discuss the different influences our training can have and how we can improve our horses' overall athleticism, soundness of mind and body, and emotional fortitude, while strengthening and deepening our relationship with our horses. Each week, I will endeavor to bring to you a new episode on horse riding, training, handling, and husbandry, or an interview with other industry professionals to help you address where and why you might get stuck in creating the beautiful union of dancing souls that is the equestrian sport. Are you ready to kick off today's show? Let's get started. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today, Warwick. I'm so excited to talk to you. Uh, I'm really eager to dig into the different um, changes that you've had in your training style over the last couple of years, um, where you've really kind of had that moment of self-reflection, I guess, that you talk about sharing on your podcast. <laughs> so um, I have to start off with, I'm an avid fan. Ten, I think about 10 years ago or so, I started out um, by myself professionally and I was binging your YouTube videos and I had one of those like, oh my God moments when you said that the horse learns from the release of pressure, not the application of pressure. I was like, just the key unlocked the whole puzzle for understanding about marking and rewarding behaviours instead of just kind of like pushing and hoping that the horse figures it out and leaving it up to the horse to figure it out. Or or holding them there, thinking that you're doing them a favour by holding them there, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because they're, you know, as you would have figured out at the time, they're looking for that release of pressure. And if you keep holding them while they're doing the right thing, pretty soon they're searching for something other than that to get the release of pressure. And a lot of times it becomes a buck or a rare. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And then you go, oh, my horse is rotten. And actually the horse is being very, very, very good because you've taught them that that's what makes the pressure go away. Nothing yeah. else makes it go away. That makes it go away. There's, there's definitely a period of time at the beginning of my training where I, would, I was actually pushing the horse into that behavior, I think, because I didn't understand where that moment before is that you need to look for yeah. and pushing them into that behavior and then working them through it might seem like I was a good trainer at the time. But. I think I think we do that a bit. We um, And we can get into this later, but, I, you know, the changes that I've made over the last four or five years, I realise now that a lot of the behaviours that I would, and, and I didn't, I'm not talking about, um, you know, I, I could solve the rearing and the bucking behaviours, but there were some other more subtle stuff that I was actually very good at 
causing to happen and then very good at fixing it. So I kind of get to where I pat myself on the back, like, hey, I know how to fix these problems. But over the years, I've realized that uh, I was causing those problems. Yeah. And that's a big realization. You know? uh, it's a hard one, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know if it's a hard one. It's, it's, it's just a big one. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I suppose it depends on where you're at can be hard if you, you know, if you're not ready to be wrong, I guess it can be hard. But mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're looking for, you know, if you're looking for the truth no matter what it is, then it's, it's not actually that hard. It's actually relief. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Definitely. Um, so today what I wanted to talk to you about is um, with the journey that you've been on that started off with, um, I think his name is Sherlock. I wrote Sherlock, down Sheriff, yeah. but I'm pretty sure it's Sherlock. It's Sherlock, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's always a horse, right? <laughs> yeah. I love um, in, I think it was your first episode of your podcast talking about being so sure of yourself and so confident and feeling like you could fix anything. And then it meant that you started to believe your own BS. I so feel that. (laughs) And then it's always a horse that gives us that reality check and says, Hey, there's more to it. You know, but I think there's, I mean, you've got, you've almost got to have that, that get, I don't mean the, the realization you don't know everything, but you almost got to have that confidence in yourself. And I, you know, I've never been a real uh, self-confident person anyway. You know, everything good that's happened to me has happened because I'm lucky, not because I'm a planner and I think I can do this. You know, I've just happened to walk into situations that have led me this far. It wasn't like, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that sort of thing. And I was watching an episode of last year's American Idol last year I was watching it and it got down to where they were down to the final 10 or 12 or whatever. And they were, I think they were in Hawaii or somewhere like that and had this stage and they all come, they come out and do an act. And then the next day they come up on this stage and the three judges are there and, and the judges, you know, critique them. And there was one guy, I forget who he was, but um, Lionel Richie said to him, I wish I could remember exactly what it was, but he said, being successful is, is being very doubtful about your abilities and very, very cocky and self-confident all in the same human being and trying to find the middle path of that. You can't be just one and you can't be just the other one. And there's this, it's it's like, it's like up and down transitions or whatever. I mean, there's a spot in the middle you're trying to find and you can't just have no forward and you can't just have all forward. and, And it's that, balancey thing but i really i have to i think i tv whatever you call dvr you know i might have to go back and i think i've still gone on the tv because it was one of those one of those sayings i'm like oh, that's it right there i mean you can't yeah. have all the one or all of the other yeah totally we have um something down at school where we say you do a fall <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're starting to um maybe challenge your, your own abilities and your horse's abilities and but, but i but you know, I think that's that's how it goes. I mean, the path is not. Hell, I got a, I got a tattoo on my wrist here that's of a Buddhist symbol called a unalom. Let me see if I can get it up here for you. Yeah. So your journey starts out here, and you kind of waller around for a while. You have no idea where you're going, and then you finally head off in the right direction. And then, oh shit, I'm going the wrong way. And then, <laughs> you head, oh shit, I'm going the wrong way. And it's just all these loops, and those loops get smaller and smaller and smaller. 
yeah. as you go along. But initially, you're just going in circles. And then yep. you finally find the direction you're trying to head in. You start heading, but then it goes back down. And then you're heading up and it goes back down. And I think, you know, it goes a bit like that. So you, you can't, sorry, you can't harshly judge yourself when those things happen. And, and you know, that there is a reminder to me that, hey, when you start failing, it's all right. It's, it's setting you up for the next upward thing. You know, don't get too been out of shape about it so it's it's you know it's that you can't be too full of yourself and you can't what's the saying don't listen to your detractors or your admirers too much yeah because they're both wrong (laughs) yeah it's that evan evan flow yeah it really is yeah Yeah. and and you you know i think personally it's like that and then i think your training goes that way too i mean it's never just Upward, it's up and back and up and back and up and back. What, what do they call it? It's, it's a cha-cha, you know, two steps yeah. forward and one step back. Yeah. Yeah. We visit those foundations regularly. <laughs> yes. So in um, you were talking about in the workshops that you did after. So maybe we should talk, talk a little bit about um, recognising those relaxation. We call them relaxation cues where the horse is like trying to take itself into that state of relaxation when it's with us, where you see the whiskers start to muzz, um, to wiggle and the, and the lip quivers and you can kind of see the horse taking themselves out of the flight state. And then you see like some bigger cues where they might rub their leg, their nose on their leg, lower their head, shake their body out, that kind of thing. Was there a point... I know through that time that was like a lot of experimentation for you. Was there a point with Sherlock in particular or was he just the one that was asking the questions? He was the one, you know, so the story of Sherlock, my wife bought him. He was a reigning horse. He was a very high-level reigning horse, but they couldn't they couldn't get him shown very well because he spooked at the judges' chairs and things like that. And, and I'm like, oh, I can fix that by the horse. And he, he was a lot less money than a horse of that calibre would have been. And I figured... Well, I can fix that. I, you know, I'm helping everybody else with the horses. I'm sure I can help this one. Yeah. And I got him home, and nothing I did actually helped that. I mean, he was functional. He was quite functional, but the thing he carried this level of tension in his body that, like when you, like when you show him in the raining, that level of tension would cause little little things to happen that stopped him from being a superstar. You know, it yeah. wasn't like he wasn't ever doing anything bad. And for yeah. most people thought he was great. Um, but with him, I soon realized that I don't know how to, to solve that. So I just stepped away from it. I wasn't, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not going to go, well, I'm just going to figure it out on you because I really had no idea what to do. And, and but he really got me thinking about uh, different things. And luckily I do clinics. So I got to experiment with 12 horses every weekend for quite yeah. a while. And and I, 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 and it wasn't just experimenting with horses. I read some articles and different things, the type of article that I wouldn't have read before. Yeah. And they really got me thinking about just, um, just not just being aware of the little things, but communicating and probably the communicating awareness of the little things is, is the biggest thing. And the catalyst, the big catalyst was I did a clinic in Texas and this is probably a year after we got Sherlock, um, and there was a Mustang at this clinic and he's a nine-year-old Mustang, been out of the wild for six years, has a random bolting issue. And, you know, for me, bolting, rearing, bucking, any of those things, they're, they're usually pretty easy to solve. 
And the reason they're easy to solve is because you figure out what's causing them and you work on that. You don't fix the buck or the rear of the bolt. But I used to, I used to get a lot. There's some different trainers around here of the uh, English ilk, you might say, that used to send me horses to fix their bucking problems. And the reason they sent it to me is because I wore a cowboy hat. Is so it because of what, sorry? I wore a cowboy hat. So obviously oh, yeah. he's going <laughs> to ride the buck out of them, you know. Yeah. So, you know, when they would come and get their horse and it was all fixed, they, I mean, they didn't come watch. They would think that I rode the buck out of them or something or other. But so bucking, rearing, bolting and stuff like that's usually relatively easy to fix once you can figure out what's causing it and work on that. Because the work, I think the work's easy. Yeah. Figuring out what to do is hard. It's like, you know, there's the joke about the, you know, the, the oil tanker or this big ship in the ocean and it breaks down and they can't get it to go and they fly a mechanic out there and on a helicopter and he lands and he walks around the engine room and looks at things and takes a big spanner and goes whack whack and the engine starts and he gives them a bill for a hundred thousand dollars and they said but you didn't do anything and the bill, he said we'll have a look at the itemized bill and the itemized bill said tapping the engine five dollars knowing where to tap $99,950, you know, whatever it was, you know, and it's, it's a little bit like that is that is, I think and most people can do the work itself. It's not like you need strong arms or strong legs or a tough, whatever, but it's figuring out what's causing stuff. Anyway, the trainer for this Mustang was at the clinic. And so I said to her, and she's pretty handy. And I said to her, so what's the, what's the trigger? Like, why does he bolt? And she said, we can't figure it out. One day something won't bother him. The next day it'll, he'll spook and bolt from it. So I, well, I had no idea what I was going to do with his horse, but it was a three-day clinic. The first day was so boring. I don't, remember, I don't remember the horse. There was nothing unusual. The second day um, she was doing some groundwork with him and she was in the morning group. At the time I used to have a morning and an afternoon group. Now I have uh, – I have 12 horses and I used to do 12 horses all day. Then I used to do six horses for half a day. And these days I do three people for two hours. And, and I think I get actually get more done with horses and people with three people for two hours. And I did with 12 for 10 yeah. hours. Um, anyway, she was doing some groundwork and she was asking him to disengage. So she was going to walk down his near side and just ask him to cross and uncross his hind legs, a little bit like a turn on the forehand sort of thing. Yeah. And she said, hey, I've got a question. He's blocking me out. Like I go to walk down there and he turns his head and he won't let me down there. And in the past, what I would have done, if this microphone, here is a horse's head and they blocked me out, like I was trying to go down there, I would have just reached under here and went, excuse me, yeah, like that. And the way I would have looked at it was he's trying to keep me in his right eye. He doesn't want me in his left eye. But if I walk around his head and he makes me move my feet, I lose and he wins. I was still in that. I lose, you win. You know, there's a, there's a winner and a loser in this conversation, but I, I didn't do either of those. This stuff I've been reading. So this horse, you know, turned his head to block me out. And when he did, I just stepped back to where I was in front of him. Like I was right in front of him and I went to walk down the side. He blocked me out. So I stepped back to the front. I basically said, I saw your concern right there. I don't know why it bothers you, but it bothers you. I mean, you know, so I'm going to, so I stepped back and tell him now that I saw that concern and I waited, you know, waited for some sign of him relaxing. I don't know if his ears became less fixated. He's, you know, he started to blink, maybe he licked and chewed. I can't remember, but I waited till one of those things happened and I tried again and he blocked me out. So I stepped back and that went on for five or 10 minutes. And uh, pretty soon I can walk down beside him. He doesn't block me out. And I'm thinking, 
okay, she was working on the disengage, but, and he's been ridden for six years. I just, I'm sure I can touch him. So I put my hand out, went to put it on his, you know, just in front of his withers on his neck. And he raised his head up about that far. And so I just stepped back and went, Hey, that concerned you. I see that. And stood there till he showed me some sign of relaxing again. I did that for five or 10 minutes. And pretty soon I can walk from the front, walk down beside him, touch him. There's no concern. And then I started working on the disengage. And the first time I did it, he did it perfectly because I knew he knew how to do it. And then I thought, I bet he doesn't like disengaging. So if I go back to the front now, he's going to block me out. Mm. Went back to the front. He let me come down the side. I disengaged him. Went to the front, down the side, disengaged. Front. Like, so I hand the lead rope back to the lady and I said, I have no idea what happened just then, but he's not blocking us out anymore. Yeah. And I didn't do anything. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't train him. Yeah. Anyway. Here's the little horse. She said, what do you want me to do? And I said, I'll oh, just hang on and let him process that. And about 15, and I went and helped somebody else. And about 15 minutes later, there's this collective <gasps> from everybody there. And I turned and looked and this horse has buckled at the knees and go boom on his belly and he's snoring little dust clouds in the dirt. And then he has a roll, gets up, shakes, and then boom, down he goes again. And I said to the lady, is that normal? She said, I've seen him lay down once in six years. And I'm like, really? And this is about probably 10 o'clock in the morning. And he slept till lunchtime. We had to wake him up from, to put him away for lunch. Um, the next morning she came back in and she said, what do you want me to do? And I said, I don't know, just hang on to him and see what happens. 20 minutes later, boom, down he went and slept for four hours to lunchtime with a loudspeaker going, horses riding around and stuff like that. And I knew then something happened. Like something, a major change happened with this horse and I have lots of major changes with horses up to that point in time, but it was something I did. I facilitate, I, well, I trained it. I taught them to whatever. And so I knew something happened. Anyway, I came home from that clinic and looked up um, sleeping habits of horses on the internet. And we all know horses can sleep standing up in the lock stay apparatus. But what I didn't realize is they have to lay down in order to get that deep restorative REM sleep that we all need. And, if they can't, and we, we don't know, you know, you can't ask a horse how he feels, but we know with humans, if you don't get enough REM sleep, you become irritable or anxious. Yeah. And so I think this horse had just um, not laid, not laid down and slept for very much. And so that was causing anxiety, but the, okay. So, but back up a bit, why did he lay down and go to sleep? And the reason he laid down and went to sleep, I figured out now is because I told him I'm aware and I was aware of him turning his head. And I said, Hey, I see that. And, he, he, and he's kind of like, well, if you're aware of that, you could probably be aware of a mountain lion around here was going to eat us. So you keep an eye out and I'll have a snooze. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because a lot of times what we do with our horses is we have this agenda and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. We're going to do something else. And I, these, you know, and that was the start. That was the big thing for me. That particular horse was the start of, holy cow and, and, and then i've taken a bit of a dive down that rabbit hole but these days it's more about connection first training second and what i have found is i used to be very good at you know horses that were anxious and different things and i was very good at fixing those behaviors but now what i realize is how i was around horses and a lot of times i i got you know people sent me problem horses but what i found was a lot of the things I did around those horses, not necessarily when I was training them, just being around them is causing part of the problem, you know, and it all comes down to we're all mammals and we all seek, um, you know, social engagement and 
we can get into a lot of that stuff later on. Sorry, I'll let you keep asking questions. <laughs> no, you're totally singing our language over here, Warwick. <laughs> That's why I was so excited to talk to you. Um, and so one of the things that you were talking about in these workshops as you were uh, trying to kind of unravel this state of relaxation is that you would get, um, you know, the owners to hold the horses uh, and say, just stand with them. You know, maybe it would, because it can take so long initially for the horses to start showing those signs of relaxation around us. Uh, and what you were finding is that in that period of time, some of them would just start crying on you. <laughs> you just didn't really know what to make of it, but it seemed to happen quite regularly for you. Yeah, it did. Um, you know, and I've had people cry at clinics before, but usually it was something I said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they'd be just standing over there. You know, what I tell them is, okay, so you're, what, I, what I noticed, and this is, you know, most of the stuff that I do, I stole from someone else. There's very, you know, very little of it that I think I'm the one that came up with it. But what I had noticed was if you could get a horse, horses get their focus, and I don't mean hold their focus, but get their focus right there for at least a split second and then just stand there, what I'd noticed is they'd have these, their muscles would start twitching and this trigeminal nerve that run down here would start twitching. And if you waited long enough, they'd have a big old lick and chew. And so I was, when I discovered that, I would, you know, help someone with their horse and I go, okay, see, so he's got that twitching going on. So just stand here and just observe that, but don't do anything just to just be aware of that. And then at some point in time, we're going to wait for him to have a lick and a chew. And it was the, the during the standing observing that this crying was happening. And what I realize now is most of us are never present. Yeah. We're always thinking about something or other. And a lot of the times we do that because if we become present, stuff comes up that we've been stuffing down. And so we avoid that by doing stuff, you know yeah. what I mean? And um, and that's what was happening was these people, you know, the first time it happened was at a, you're in Queensland, aren't you? Yes. Yeah, it was at, it was at Caboolture at the, the what is the, the big equestrian center there? The yeah. QSEC, is that what it's called? Sorry? Yeah. Oh, yeah, QSEC. we're not in yeah. We're not there, no. <laughs> no, but that's where it was. That's yeah. the, the first time it happened, there was two people in a clinic there and one of them started crying and one of them said, you okay? She goes, I was just, just thinking about something that my dad told me as a kid. And I'm like, <laughs> and then in the same same session, a lady up the other end, named Fiona, she uh, had a similar thing and it was something to do with a mum. And she yeah. still tells me that was her spiritual awakening for the want of a better word that moment when she was standing there with this this horse and i think there was a lot to do with it her it was a some sort of a little show hack you know and you know they'd had all sorts of problems with it and i think there was a and i think this lady's mum had trained the horse and i think there was when this horse started letting down this fiona lady kind of went oh my when the, it was a couple of things when on one was she was present, but the other one was she was starting to think, oh, we've been, we've been going about this all wrong. This horse has been very tense. So some, I think sometimes those realizations are like, you know, like the veil gets lifted and you really mm. see what's going on. And then you reflect back on how stupid you've been and, you know, <laughs> all that sort of stuff. I think that's, that was a part of, of hers. You know, part of it was a realization that, Hey, this is, this pony's not what we've been saying this pony is. But another part was, I think just being present, you know, 
Yeah, so hear you. So uh, one of our key learning objectives for our groundwork is um, that mental relaxation that you're kind of talking about where if you don't have the mental relaxation, you can't achieve the physical relaxation. And one of the things that I find hardest to teach people is that place of quiet because for a lot of people that is a painful place for them and that's where all of their emotions emotional baggage unpacks as well and staying busy means that we don't have to look at it and address it and so we take that kind of mental tension into the training environment with our horses and obviously that tends to feed (laughs) the horse's mental tension as well yeah well that's the hard thing I mean you know, for for what I do and for what you do, they're not hiring you to help no. them with their problems. They're hiring you to help you with their horse. But once you fully understand how much of our stuff we project onto them and how much that they pick up, you almost, for me, I, I just can't do one without the other. And I used to, there used to be people I would help at clinics and after the clinic, I used to think, you know what, that lady needs to get a cat preferably an outside cat mm-hmm. you know what i mean yeah. um because i she's hopeless with all like yeah there's what i realize now is because they could they could do the physical things you tell them to do and it still doesn't work and what i realize now is it's all the internal stuff that's going on and so you know i've i'm lucky enough because i've publicly shared my journey enough and at the start of clinics i sit in you know i do an hour and maybe an hour and a half talk Um, about a lot of this stuff and I basically put my hand up and say I've done it all wrong and this is the stuff I've done away from horses and it's made the horses so much better and so it's almost like now during clinics I have a I almost have permission from them to call them out on personal stuff not necessarily call them out on it but you know like someone might do something I go so what were you thinking about right then there was a lady here at a clinic we had here last year or the year before she had a big frisian or something or other and i was having her walk a horse she's not riding and i was having her walk a horse in circles with quite a band so it was a small circle so a lot of bands so it was a straight circle but it was a pretty small circle it was like you're walking around a drum sort of a thing and when she was riding around there she was bending over and looking down at the ground on the inside of the turn and i said to them and i think her name was cheryl but i said in the microphone so if everybody looks at cheryl right now you can see right now that cheryl is thinking that in a minute i'm going to fall off and i'm looking for a i'm looking for the spot i'm going to land and she looks up she goes how did you know (laughs) so i could you you're looking down at the ground and i can tell by your body language and stuff that you're like he's going to do something stupid here in a minute and i'm going to fall off and i wonder if it's going to be right there you know yeah um, but yeah, I, I, have you ever heard of Brene Brown? Yeah. Okay. So for you guys listening that might not know who Brene Brown is, she was a, uh, a qualitative researcher, I think on, you know, some sort of trauma in humans, but she's ended up through all her work. She's, she's figured out that the, the shame is the scourge of society. Everything that, you know, everything that goes wrong is because we have, some sort of shame inside us and but in one of her books she said that she only used to study women and girls she only used to research women and girls that was her interest and then she said you know what all of a sudden it occurred to me that if we're doing nothing for men and boys 
we're doing nothing for women and girls because where's all your stress come from? <laughs> Us. Um, and I feel it's the same way. If you're doing nothing for human mental health, you are doing nothing for horse mental health. I mean, in order to be able to, well, what's the, I read something recently that an act, it was about children or dealing with children, but an, it said an activated parent cannot help an activated child. And I think an activated human cannot help an activated horse. One of you has to be in a peaceful place for this thing to, to start to, to settle down. And, and a lot of times, um, you know, if a horse is a bit having a bit of trouble, usually the, the, the person on the ground with them is probably having trouble with the trouble the horse is having and then probably projecting a lot of other past or future things yeah. onto that. So it's, yeah, it's not easy, but I've been, you know, I've been the last few years, I mean, the whole Sherlock thing, you know, getting back to him, what I figured out with him was he was just very, very shut down. That's it for part one of our chat with Warwick. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for part two. In the meantime, you can check out Warwick's YouTube channel, podcast, online training membership and socials and follow along with his journey of seeking connection. The links are in the show notes. If you're loving what you're listening to on the podcast, you might be starting to recognize that trying to control your horse through submission-based training is the worst way to ask your horse to look after you. If you're working with or riding horses, you know how unpredictable and sometimes scary they can be. Unfortunately, most struggling horse riders make the mistake of thinking they can physically control their 400 plus kilo fur babies by moving their feet or spooking them into responding with flags and join up. Without giving your horse a reason to care about you and look after you, you will most likely end up with a horse that is disconnected at best, shut down or explosive at worst because they can't communicate their needs with you, especially if you are already scared, worried or nervous handling your horse. That's why we've created our new free online training experience, building a connection with your horse. This is how I've gone about creating safe horses for beginners, no matter the breed or previous handling experiences. If you want to learn the secret source behind developing safe horses that care about you and look after you without trauma triggering training methods, register for our new training today at www.equestriummovement.com forward slash connection. And I will uncover the three big mistakes you might be making if you're trying to build a relationship with your horse and how you can start building your horse's trust and confidence in you as a leader worth following.